(Chief of Police) says about it. I then told Lawler I believed I knew who was doing the work, or at least directing it, and told him that if he and his partner would meet me at 12th and Olive Streets at 5.30 the next morning, I would help them find the man I suspected. After telling me that he and his partner would be at the rendezvous at the appointed time, Lawler and I parted company. Coleman, under the alias of Charlie Clark, was living at that time on the second floor of a house fronting on Biddle Street, between 9th and 10th Streets. The entrance to this flat was made from the alley in the rear. I knew Coleman's wife, or the woman he claimed to be his wife. She had formerly been the wife of Tom Gosling, a noted crook, who was at that time in the Missouri Penitentiary, doing a ten-year stretch. Her first name was Annie, and she had a son of about six or seven years of age. Lawler and his partner were at the corner of Twelfth and Olive Streets promptly at 5.30 the next morning, according to appointment. I then told them all about Coleman, and we proceeded to the latter's flat. On reaching the head of the stairway, I knocked at the door. Mrs. Coleman, garbed only in a night robe, came to the door and opened it a few inches. I stuck my foot in the door to keep her from closing it. I want to see Charlie, I explained to her. He's not here, Mr. Furlong, she replied, after recognising me and permitting us to enter. I do not know where he is, she continued. She then told me that Charlie had gone to drinking and had quit his job about a week before, and she did not know where he was or what he was doing. I knew she was not telling me the truth, as Charlie had quit his job at least a month previous, and did not drink at all. In fact, he never had been known to drink to excess. While we were talking, I noticed a large-sized picture of Coleman hanging on the wall. This I told the officers to take, and commanded her to dress. "'What are you going to do, Mr. Furlong?' she asked. "'I'm going to take you down to police headquarters for lying to me.' I replied. Both she and her boy began to cry and make a scene, but she finally began dressing. While this was going on, I heard a slight noise in the front room. Who's in there? I asked, jumping to the door. A couple of friends of Charlie's from Hannibal, she replied. Lawler and I entered this room and found a couple of men in bed. After placing them under arrest, we recognised them as a couple of crooks, both of whom were heavily armed. Under the bed was a gunny sack, which, on investigation, we found to contain a safe-blowing outfit, including a sectional jimmy, a pair of come-alongs, note, tool used to pull the knob or ears of a safe, a new hammer, and other tools. These men had evidently returned to the room late, and being tired, threw the sack under the bed and went to sleep. Just as we were about to take our departure from the room with the prisoners, a mail carrier arrived with a letter for Mrs. Clark. I took charge of the letter and saw it had been mailed at Springfield, Missouri. I handed it to Mrs. Clark, and she opened it and read its contents. The letter was from her husband, and stated he was in Springfield, and for her to answer it at once, as he was only going to remain in Springfield a couple of days and he wanted to hear from her before leaving there. We then took our prisoners, including Mrs. Clark, to the four courts. 
Some small pictures of Clark were taken from the large one we had found in his home, and Chief of Detectives Burke, armed with one of the pictures, left at once for Springfield to try and effect his capture. In this, Burke was successful, as Clark appeared at the post office to get his mail, and was recognised and placed under arrest. Clark was brought back to St. Louis. He would not talk to the St. Louis officers, although the latter used every art known to them to make the prisoner cough up. Clark told Chief of Police Harrigan he knew nothing that would do them any good, but that he had some information that was very valuable for me, and asked that I be called. At that time the relations between the chief and myself were somewhat strained, to express it mildly, but the chief finally sent for me. This thief has some information for you, said Harrigan to me on my arrival at his office. I do not believe he is much of a thief either, as I know all the good ones, continued the chief. After shaking hands with Clark, he told me the city officers could not connect him with any of the jobs pulled off here, as he had nothing to do with them, but declined to talk further in the presence of the chief we being in the latter's office at the time. As Harrigan did not seem inclined to let me interview Clark privately, I left and returned to my office. Later in the day, Clark employed a lawyer and sent him to me to tell me that if I would get him across the river, he would tell me all about that job, meaning the looting of the city hall vault. I referred Clark's lawyer to prosecuting attorney Holder, of St. Clair County, Illinois, and later the latter made a demand on the St. Louis police for the possession of Clark. The St. Louis officers, thinking that they might secure at least a part of the reward which had been offered for the apprehension of the men who committed the East St. Louis crime, took Clark over the river where he was locked up. I then called on him and he told me all about the vault robbery. According to his story, which was later verified by his two assistants, Clark was employed to do the job by Thomas A. Canty, acting city treasurer, to hide an alleged shortage in Canty's accounts. The latter was, it was claimed, $60,000 short, having lost the money at poker. The money had to be turned over the next day, and Canty could not do it because he could not raise that amount. Clark had been introduced to County by Patrick Egan, who was at that time running a saloon in East St. Louis and was one of the city's aldermen. Egan was regarded as a friend of crooks of the higher class, such as confidence men, safe blowers, and big mitt men. Coleman claimed he was told by County that $10,000 would be left on the top of the safe, which was the amount he was to receive for doing the work. Coleman was also introduced to Lieutenant Duffy, acting Night Chief of Police of the East St. Louis Department, who was to act as lookout while the work was being done. The $10,000 was to be divided equally between Duffy, Egan and Coleman. A few days before the time set for doing the job, Canty became ill and was taken to Hot Springs. This did not interfere with the plans, however. D.J. Canty according to the testimony, taking his brother's place and making the final arrangements for the entering of the vault. Coleman did the real work, assisted by Egan, while Duffy, in full uniform, stood guard on the outside. 
a box in which was supposed to be ten thousand dollars, was found on top of the safe, as had been promised by Canty. This box was taken by the three men to Duffy's home, and its contents poured out on the kitchen table. But instead of ten thousand dollars, there was only three thousand dollars. This money was divided equally among the three men, after which all went downtown again. It was then about 2.30 a.m. Duffy, not wishing to carry so much money around with him, placed his part in the safe of a saloon-keeper friend, who was also an alderman. The lieutenant, in his testimony at the trial of the Canties two years afterwards, declared that his $1,000 decreased to $700 during the night. In other words, someone had touched the roll for $300. I told prosecuting attorney Holder and the Citizens Committee about Coleman's confession and was employed to secure corroborating evidence, which was done. Egan and Duffy were arrested, convicted and sentenced to five years each in the penitentiary. They appealed the case, but at the next term of court withdrew their appeals after a conference with prosecuting attorney Holder, and entered pleas of guilty, and received two years each. The Canty brothers were arrested, but notwithstanding the fact that Coleman, Duffy and Egan testified for the state, and there was much corroborating evidence, the jury failed to agree, standing seven for conviction to five for acquittal. At the time, it was alleged that money had been expended very freely to clear the brothers. Coleman was not prosecuted. He left the city for the West, and the next I heard of him, he was conducting a saloon on Geary Street, San Francisco. Later, he and Henry Schultz, another noted Peterman, formed an alliance and opened a half-dozen boxes in the country surrounding the Golden Gate metropolis. They were finally settled for one of their jobs, by Captain Leas of Frisco. Later, Coleman was released, but was soon afterwards killed at Houston, Texas, while attempting to rob a bank. He was acting as lookout while his pals were at work on the vault. The first explosion attracted the attention of the police, who opened fire on Coleman, and his death was instantaneous. Thus, his long career of crime ended. Chief of Detectives Burke of the St. Louis Police Department afterwards claimed the reward for capturing the vault robbers, and, I believe, secured a part of the money. But he was really not entitled to assent, as he had done none of the real work on the case. The next sensation in East St. Louis was the assassination of ex-Mayor John B. Bowman, which occurred about 6.30 o'clock on the evening of November 20th, 1885. The assassin did his work well. It can be described in a sentence. A shot was fired, and the corpse of the leader of the reformers was found lying near the gate leading to his residence, alone with the secret. I was employed by the son of the dead man to try and unravel the mystery, being given complete charge of the case. I had known Bowman for years, and was acquainted with his past life, which had been a very turbulent one. He had always been a fighter one of the kind who never knew when they were whipped. He settled in East St. Louis in the latter part of the 60s and acquired a large amount of property.